We are in Deuteronomy. If you would turn to Deuteronomy 1, if you're not there, we are, I told you we're going to move quickly through Deuteronomy. Not, not so quick that we don't catch it, but we're not going to spend the next four years in Deuteronomy. There are 34 chapters. We could be in there a long time. And today, um, as painful as it may have been for me, we are, going to cut, we are going to, Lord willing, cover three chapters. And if you know me well enough, that's a lot. That's hard work for me to cover three chapters three chapters to not stop, but, but we're going to do it. We're going to do it. And, and how I, I hope that you'll take advantage of these binders, and I hope that at the end, you know, you can write Deuteronomy on the, on the spine there on the cover, and, and, and you can go back to these notes at, at some point and review Deuteronomy, that you'll have a good handle on Deuteronomy. And, and Lord willing, who knows how long the Lord tarries and how long He allows me to be here, but, you know, we can... You know, maybe we'd have uh, all 66 books, Lord willing, one day. That'd be, that'd be pretty cool. So, uh, uh, you know, we've done James and Titus and 1 Corinthians and others, and um, just about six books too late on these binders. But other than that, uh, we'll get through here. So uh, today, like I said, we're going to cover chapters 1 through 3, and um, I, I'm going to pick out just the predominant theme or a... a just an overarching truth about the great God that we serve from each of these chapters and tie it into the whole book. Remember, this book, if you were going to tie it together, it is about covenant. God has formed a covenant with His people. And He is not willing to back down. He is not willing to falter on that covenant. And that's what I want us to see today. We, we serve a God who is a promise keeper. And everything that we're going to see in Deuteronomy revolves around the fact that he has entered into a covenant with his people. And the reason why that is important is because the truths that we see about this great God in Deuteronomy are very applicable and true for us today. We too, through the blood of Jesus Christ, have entered into a new covenant with God. You can look at Jeremiah 31, you can look at Ezekiel 36. Uh, We are in a covenant people. The same things, the same truths that we see about our great God here in Deuteronomy are true for us today, and and we will cling to those. And we see in here a God who is committed to His people regardless of their response. And I'm thankful for that, because if you're like me, my response to God's grace has not always been appropriate to His grace. It's not always matched His grace. It was not, I didn't, don't always respond well. And we see here in the people of Israel really a picture of our own heart. Really a picture of our own lives. Oftentimes failing to respond appropriately to God's grace and His covenant faithfulness. And there, there, the, the other thing that we'll see is there are consequences to that. I, I don't want you to ever, I don't want any of us to ever think that, that there are no consequences to not responding to God's grace. We, 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 may not, we cannot lose our salvation, we're clear of that, but we certainly, through our sin and failing to respond appropriately, we will forfeit many of the blessings that come with that salvation. And that's really a picture of Israel as well. They lost out on a lot of blessings that they could have experienced of being God's people because of their lack of appropriate response to God's grace. And so I want us to be a people that you know, sees God for who He is and worships Him alone for who He is, but responds appropriately that we won't miss out. And so chapter 1, you'll see there on your notes, uh, each chapter I've kind of broken down into a theme. In chapter 1, the thing I, wanna, I want us to see today is this, that we must learn to trust God at all times and in everything. We must learn to trust God at all times and in everything. And we see this very clearly if you look in chapter 1. Go to verse uh, 32. This is the core issue. Look at verse 32. God ha- Moses has just explained, and, and again, Deuteronomy is really an account of, of, of Genesis through Numbers. And Moses, in, in chapter 1, begins to recount all of God's blessings and all that he did for them and just how faithful he was to them, how much he did for them, and, and on and on. And, and look what Moses says in verse 32. But for all of this, For all of God's blessings, for all of His grace, for all the battles, for everything He did, but for all of this, you did not trust the Lord your God. In spite of everything He did, in spite of the blessings, 
spite of the fighting for them, in spite of His faithfulness in the midst of their disobedience, they didn't trust. The core issue was trust. The, the core issue is this. Are you, Israel, going to take God at His word? The, the core issue for us today is the same. Are we willing to take God at His word? Are we willing to trust? Are we going to take the revelation that God has given about Himself and are we going to trust it? Or are we going to be like the Israelites and are we going to question it? Are we going to make our own way? Are we going to take a little bit of it and then maybe, hey, I'll take a little bit of it, but let me go spy that land out. Let me, let me do some of my own reconnaissance just to make sure you're good, Lord. The issue is trust. The issue is belief. And, and we can trace this. This is not new to Israel. We can trace this malady this, this problem all the way back to Genesis 2, verses 15 and 16. If you want to hold your place there in Deuteronomy 1, and, and we will come back to there, but we're going to spend a few moments in Genesis 2 because I want, to, I want you to see where this came from, where it all started. I want you to understand because we are battling the same problem today. That my number one issue is trust. Do I believe the Lord? Will I believe the Lord? Will I believe what He says or will I try to stand in judgment over His Word? In Genesis 2, verse 15, Adam, God is talking to Adam. Eve is not on the scene yet. Genesis 1, through, Genesis 1 recounts the seven days of creation. Genesis 2 is an explanation of day 6. It's further giving us detail on what happened on that sixth day when God created man. And it says in verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden and to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat from it you will die. God, has, God puts Adam in the garden and he says, Look, all of this is yours. Cultivate it, keep it, enjoy it, except for that one tree right there. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't, do not eat from that tree. Don't touch it, don't eat it, don't, go, don't, don't mess with that tree. You say, well, why, why that tree? What, what, what's the deal with that tree? Why the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why did God declare that tree off limits? And here's the point. Here's why. Because God wanted His people to simply trust what He says was good and evil. God, up to this point, every time He had said, He created this, it was good. Created this, it was good. Created this, it was good. Created man, it was very good. Man was meant to simply rely on what God said. God said it's good, it's good. Take Him at His word. God says it's evil, it's evil. You take him at his word. And up to that point, again, he had declared things were good. It was as he desired it to be. And the reason why it was good is because it reflected his character. The reason why these things later on you'll see stay away from it, they're evil, is because they don't reflect his character. Everything that was opposed to God's character would be evil. And Adam and Eve were not, were not meant, it was not intended for man to, to come about this on their own, to stand in judgment of these things on their own. That man was meant to simply trust God. What God says is good is good. What God says is evil is evil. And God knew the moment you eat from that tree, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're going to want to determine for yourself what's good, and you're going to want to determine for yourself what's evil, regardless of what I say. You're going to look at the things that I've judged and you're going to look at the things that I've said are good and the things that I've said are evil and you're going to want to stand in judgment over that. You're going to take my commands, you're going to take these things, my word, and you're going to stand in judgment. And rather than simply trusting me, you're going to want to do things your own way. You're, you're, going, to, you're going to want to go about things your own way. 
And we see this in Israel. We see it in our own lives. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, I know what the Word of God says, but that's because we ate from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. I know what the Word of God says, but... See, we, we, want, we, want, we want to judge. We don't want to simply take God's Word on things. We want to be the ones to determine what's good and what's evil. And you could trace it all the way back to Genesis 2. The, the, the issue, the question for not only Israel, but the question for us is this. Where will we get our wisdom from? What will be our guide? It's interesting, in, in Genesis 3, the serpent is disca- described as being wise. In that the, the, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had, God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? He's slick. He's, he, he, he's, he's tricking her in a sense. He's twisting God's word. Look at verse 6 and 7. Genesis 3, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate it and she gave it to her husband who was with her. You know, we we can go real quick and say Eve did this. The problem here is Adam didn't step up. Adam was with her. Eve wasn't off in Never Never Land doing something in secret, and then he came. No, he was with her. He kept his mouth shut. He should have stepped up. But, but you see the events. Her eyes were opened. She saw. She delighted in it. She saw it was good. Ultimately, what happens in verse 7? Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Even that right there is standing in judgment over what God has done. Hey, I don't need to be naked. Now, I'm thankful. I'm not. I mean, I'm thankful for clothes. Hear me that. I'm thankful, and you ought to be thankful for clothes. But, but you see, their eyes were opened. In a sense that, hey, now I'm going to judge what God has said. And ever since then, the battle, the battle in all of our lives is this. Will I trust God's revelation? Will I trust His Word in determining good and evil? Or will I rely on human insight and wisdom to determine what is good and what is evil? Where will I get my wisdom from? Where will I trust? Human wisdom and the Bible have been at war in determining what is good and what is evil ever since that date. And, and looking back in Deuteronomy, we see the effects of that. The older generation that has perished in the desert, God said to them, I have given you the land, you just go take it. You know what they said? Verse 26, oh, let us go spy it out for our own. Let, let me go in there, Lord. I know what you said, but let, let us go in there and take Let us go in there and spy it out our own. Because if we judge it to be good and we judge it to be, then we'll do it. It's not enough that you've simply said it. We're going to go judge it for ourselves. I know what you've said, but that's essentially what they're saying. Later on, as Lee read, you, you literally, if you read these verse by verse, you really get the feeling Moses, looking back, realizes, I should not have let them do that. And, and Moses, in, in some regards in Deuteronomy, you almost get the sense of a man who is a little mad and is a little angry because he allowed, he allowed them to do that, and, and he is being punished not only for his own sin, but he's being punished for theirs as well as the leader. He says there in Genesis three, I mean, Deuteronomy 3, I'm, I'm not going into the land on account of you. And, and it's interesting Because there's a new generation on the scene who is about to enter the land. And look in verse 39 at what it says about them. Why were they entering the land? Moreover, verse 39, your little ones who you said would become prey. A little hint there. Hey, God protected them. You judged them to be prey. God protected them. And your sons who this day, look, have no knowledge of good and evil. They're going to enter. And I will give it to them and they'll possess it. You know what he's saying there? They trust me. 
They trust me. That whole generation that didn't trust me, they're dead. I punished them. This, this generation who have no knowledge of good and evil. The issue is trust. The issue is, is the older generation refused to trust the revelation of God. They wanted to determine for themselves what was good and what was evil. God placed the land before them, said, take it, I'm giving you the land. I'm giving it to you. And they refused to trust. Instead, they, they wanted to determine for themselves. They wanted to judge for themselves. And, and the issue here is on the character and the justice and on the realization that God is, is the judge and He is the final authority on every matter of life that He is to be trusted. He can be trusted. In Israel, Israel, the, the point was for them to live out the word before, a wor before the world. They were to live out the, in front of the world God's wisdom and His character. That, that Israel would show the law and obeying the law and living out that law. Israel would show the world what God was like. In obeying those commands, it was simply, hey, you want to you be my people? This is how you're going to be my people. You're going to show my character. In obeying this, you will show the world... First of all, the law was showing Israel what God was like, but their obedience would show the world what God was like. This little teeny country, God says, I will so bless you, the rest of the world will look at you and say, how in the world is that little country so prosperous? How are they so successful? The answer, God. It's God. It, it was a built-in testimony. The law showed Israel what God was like. Israel was to show the world through their obedience to the, to the law, what, to show the world what God was like. And, and all throughout chapter 1, you see this over... If you can see my Bible, there's these little lines. I'm not smart enough to remember stuff, so I have to like connect the dots. I trace all these verses over and over. God says to them, I will give you the land, I will give you the land, I will give you the land. All they had to do was respond in obedience and respond in faith. Look, look at verse 21. Start in verse 20. I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is about to give us. See, the Lord your God has placed the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has spoken to you. Do not fear or be dismayed. It's an invitation. Go take the land. Obey. By faith, trust me and what I've said, go take the land. He's offered the promised land. That, that phrase, take possession occurs over 50 times in the book of Deuteronomy. Over 50 times, God is telling them, go take possession. Go take possession. And here's what it teaches us. God desires for His people to experience what He's promised them. But it only comes through trust. It, we're going to have to trust Him. In order to take possession... Of, of those blessings. And this is not a name and a claim it. What he's saying though. In order to enter. You're going to have to have faith. In order to be my people. We're going to have to operate on faith. And, and Israel's response was. They refused to receive the blessings. And instead they rebelled. Look at verse 26. Yet you were not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of your God. They refused. It's interesting, in John 5, he's talking to the Pharisees, and, and they're accusing him of all this stuff, and he says, you guys aren't willing to believe. You know, why you're, you know why you don't believe? You're not willing. The invitation is there. The offer is there. And, and not only that, they begin to attack God's character. It's not like they just didn't... They, it wasn't like it stopped at just refusing. Look at verse 27. You grumbled in your tents and said, Because the Lord hates us. 
He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. I mean, God loves them. He's committed to them through covenant, and they're accusing Him of hating Him. He, he delivers them from the hand of Egypt, and now they accuse Him of being evil in doing that. We, we do the same thing today. Trouble befalls us. God must not love us. He must not love me. God offers His Son on a cross and says, Hey, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, but you've got to go through Jesus. Oh, that's mean. That's, that's narrow. To make one way? That's hateful. That's unloving. No. It's God's wisdom. Just like with Israel, He did everything for Israel. Why? So they wouldn't boast, so they would trust in God. Salvation through Jesus Christ was designed specifically so that we would not boast, so that if we boasted, we would boast in God alone. And they, and they attack His character. Look at verse 43. So I spoke to you, but you would not listen. Instead, you rebelled against the command of the Lord and acted presumptuously. Here's the situation. They get in trouble. They don't do what the Lord says. Then the Lord says, don't do this. Like, no, 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 we get it now. Let's go do it anyway. Let's go fight this battle. And the Lord says, I never told you to fight that battle. You go fight that battle. You're on your own. And you're going to get destroyed. You are going to get whooped. No, no, we're going to do it. We're going to make up for our foolishness. We're going to do it on our own strength. We see that today. And look at verse 45. Then you returned and they, they get crushed. Then you returned and wept before the Lord. But the Lord did not listen to your voice nor give ear to you. God says, no, no, it's, 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 you're going to die. Entire generation. Dead. 20 and over. Gone. Because they refused to respond in faith. They refuse to trust. And listen to me. Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. If we're going to come to God, we're going to come to Him by faith. We're going to trust His Word. We're going to have to trust Him. And faith is not believing in spite of evidence. That is superstition. That's superstition. But it is believing in spite of circumstances and in spite of consequences. Moses is reminding them, you have seen time and time and time again how great God is and you refuse to believe. You refuse to trust Him. That is why Moses gives them this history lesson and he gives us a history lesson. If, if, we, would just, if we had our lives laid out like Israel's lives here, I promise you, you know what the number one theme you would see is? God's faithfulness. If our, if our history was laid out, He's so faithful, we don't even know He's faithful sometimes. We don't even see it. He's just that gracious. And, and what He's showing them, and He's showing us, and we see this in 1 Thessalonians 5.24, God's commandment always comes with God's enablement always comes with God's enablement, His commands. Look, look at 1 Thessalonians 5.24. I think we have it on there. Faithful is He who calls you, and He also will bring it to pass. He's faithful. If He's called you to do it. See, they acted presumptuously and tried to do that which He had not called them to do instead of doing what He had called them to do, and they got wiped out. And, and he's giving them a foundation for their faith. He's showing them the reason they can have confidence and faith in him as their king. And instead of enjoying that, they went on their own way and they wandered in the desert for 38 years. What could have been an 11-day journey turned into a 40-year a forty year delay. They could have been in the promised land for some 39, almost 40 full years enjoying that land, and, and they didn't trust. They didn't trust. 
And, and the real issue, the reason why I say this, because if we were honest with ourselves, the real, the real issue in all of our lives is a spiritual issue. The underlying problem, the underlying battle in all of our lives, it's not physical, it's not mental, it's not any of these things, it's spiritual. Will we trust God? It's a trust issue. It's a trust issue. And, and our lack of trust in the Lord is a deadly spiritual condition. And it has consequences for every part of our lives. My lack of trust has consequences for Karen. It has consequences for Sarah. It has consequences for Bradley. It has consequences for this church. The issue is spiritual. Will we believe the Lord? And what Moses is showing them and he's showing us is this. We can trust God no matter what. You can trust God. And, and what he's saying is this. If your view of God is flawed, your response to God will be flawed. That's why theology matters. If your view of God is flawed, your response will be flawed. If you don't see him for actually what he is, your response will be flawed. And Moses is trying to get their entire attention upon God. And, and, and what their problem was this. They focused on the obstacles instead of focus. They focused on the greatness of the obstacles instead of focusing on the greatness of their God. And Moses is saying this. You focus on God rather than the obstacle. You focus on the character of God and not the obstacle. He's saying Moses is your divine, I mean, God is your divine warrior. He's your divine guide. He's your divine father. You can trust him no matter what. And so what we walk away from here is this, is we learn to trust God by trusting God. That's the challenge. You learn to trust God by trusting God. There's no shortcutting it. You know, you, just like you, you, you want to be fit and have muscles and all that, guess what? You, you don't, this is what you look like when you avoid the gym. You don't get to be, I was watching this Reebok CrossFit the other thing the other day, and I said, Karen, this is sad shape. You're married to a guy who wishes he had the arms of that woman right there. And that, that's who you married. I'm jealous about a woman's arms. Like, I won't watch Serena Williams play. I'm like, Karen, don't look at her. Look at those arms. But you, you, how did she get that way? By devoting herself, attention, commitment. You learn to trust God by walking with God. And you learn that He's faithful, that He can always be trusted. There's no other way around it. And He's trustworthy, friends. No matter what, He's trustworthy. He's trustworthy. Chapter 2, what I want us to see is this, is God is always faithful and He is actively involved in all of our affairs. He's always faithful and He's actively involved. In, in Deuteronomy 2 and in Deuteronomy 3, Moses is addressing this new generation who's about to enter the promised land. This is the generation that was under 20, through God's faithfulness, and by no other, they, they survived those years wandering in the desert. And this new generation would obey God, and Moses shows how they obeyed God, and ultimately they would take the land that had been offered to the previous generation. They're going to take the blessing that was offered to the prior generation. Why? Because they trusted God. They relied upon God. And this is what I want us to see in chapter 2 is this, that God's faithfulness goes beyond our faithfulness. And He is faithful even when we wander and disobey. He's still faithful. Even in our wanderings, He's faithful. Even in Israel's wanderings, He was always faithful. You read Deuteronomy and you'll see that their clothes didn't wear out. They never went hungry. He provided for them time and time and time again. And there are some specifics here in chapter 2 that I want us to see with regards to His faithfulness. And the first thing on your handout is this. God is faithful to His promises. He's faithful to His promises. 
promises. Look at 2.7. Deuteronomy 2.7. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. He has known your wanderings through, his, through this great wilderness. These 40 years the Lord your God has been with you. You have not lacked a thing. Even in their sin. Even in their wandering. They didn't lack a thing. That's how faithful God is. And, and guess what? I'm grateful for that. Because I'm a wanderer. I oftentimes have little faith. I oftentimes disobey. I'm grateful for God's faithfulness. It doesn't mean I do it on purpose, but it means I'm grateful that when I do, God remains faithful. He's faithful to His promises. God never stopped being faithful to Israel, even when their response was lacking, even as they wondered. And what he's saying is centuries before this generation ever existed, God made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And he said, I will make your descendants more numerable than the stars in the sky, than the sand on the shore. I will make you a great nation. And that's what he's doing here. I'm not being faithful because of you. I'm being faithful because that's what I promised. Because that's what I told you I would do. And I'll do it. I, I debated strongly all the talk this week, and some of you may have seen it. I, it's not in my notes, so I get in trouble when I go over my notes. But there's, there's this video going around about a bunch of foolishness that, that, that we worship because of us. We worship because it makes us happy. That's garbage. Garbage. I'm just telling you. As your shepherd... Who wants to lead you to green pastures to eat? If you're reading that stuff, stop it. Stop it. It's garbage. It's like me feeding my children Snicker bars. They're going to love me for about 10, 20 minutes, and then they're going to be hungry in about 15. It's garbage. I'm not going to name, name their name. I'm not giving them the... But we do not worship for ourselves. We worship for God. We should worship because He's worthy. I worship because I deserve wrath and He gives me grace. I deserve to be smoked. I don't, deserve to be, I don't deserve to be alive at year 38, but yet He allowed me in His grace. We worship because of God. And, and the great God that we serve, this is how great a God we serve, that I'm willing even to suffer. That as Seth is sitting in a hospital bed, getting a leukemia treatments and having his whole body ravaged that their whole family is still saying we praise God that's worship that's the God we serve it's not about my happiness he's promised to make me happy for all eternity I'll deal with happiness and health and and prosperity and all that junk for all eternity but he says serve me now and I'll give you all that later this is not your best life now. It will never be. Every day is not Friday. There's a Monday and a Tuesday. and Very few days are Friday in my life. This is, if, this is, if this is all God has to offer, we need to be out there doing our own thing and living our own lives because this is garbage. This is not the best life now. Nothing about that. I mean, I think about Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you not only to believe, but to suffer. It's a gift. And it shows how glorious our God is. You, you can't stand behind that theology when people face real life issues, when people die and have cancer and have treatments and all that. Oh, your best life now. That doesn't, that doesn't fit. But guess what? There's a God who loves you and is faithful even in the midst of that, that where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. Where Satan wanted to take you away from God, God says, know what? I already whooped him. I crucified my son to put him to death. And there's coming a day where I'm going to bind him for all eternity and we're not going to deal with this stuff anymore. But until then, serve me. And he's faithful. He's faithful in His promises. He will not lead where His grace and His power don't provide. And see, that's exactly the point of illness and sickness and everything that Satan throws at us to try to deter us. 
God says, you are more than conquerors through him who loved you in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 37. Satan wants to destroy you. He wants to take you away. He wants you to turn your back on God. And God says, no, no, no. I'm going to give you even more grace to walk through that. And I'm going to just overwhelmingly conquer the enemy. Overwhelmingly conquer. And time and time again, verse 30, verse 33, verse 36, time and time again you see this, even into chapter 3, God is the one who delivered His people. God did this. He's faithful. And the theme of God's faithfulness is rooted in chapter 1. That's part of the history lesson as well. We can, we can trust God. Why? Because He was faithful to us first. 1 John 4, 9 says what? We love why? Because he first loved us. This isn't, I love God, and then in response to my love, he loves me. I love God because he first loved me. And by the way, he first loved me when I hated him. Psalm 5, 5. Romans 5. Enemies. And he loved us. First. He initiated it. Not only is God faithful to his promises, but good guys... He's also faithful to his threats. And you've got to know the bad news sometimes before you know the good news. He's faithful to his threats. Look in chapter 2 at verses 14 through 16. Now the time that it took for us to come to Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over to the brook Zered was 38 years. Listen to this. Until all the generation of the men of war perished from when the camp. Why? As the Lord has sworn to them. He's faithful to his threats. They all died just like he told them they would. Moreover, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from when the camp and they all perished. So it came about when all the men of war had finally perished from among the people. He's faithful in his threats. Think about this. Two Estimates I looked, estimates I saw this week. Two, over two million corpses were laying in the desert. And you know what they proved? God is faithful. God upholds His promises and He upholds His threats. He's going to deal with sin. On the surface, that seems harsh. But here's why that seems harsh, because I don't take sin as seriously as I should. I don't understand how utterly offensive my sin is to a holy God. And therefore, when He judges sin, I think He's harsh. If I really understood how offensive my sin was, I'd have no problem understanding why God punishes sin the way He does. But we don't. Israel was ungrateful. They murmured, they complained, they turned their back on grace, they grumbled about His provision. And He says, listen, my only obligation to you, if you're going to turn your back on me, my only obligation is, is to punish you. And it's true today. You turn your back on Jesus Christ, there's an eternity in hell. You're not going to be in hell partying with your friends and living up sin. You're going to be in hell weeping and gnashing teeth for all eternity. You're not annihilated where you don't feel anything anymore for all eternity. Now, I'm not saying that. If I could, I'm not trying to scare you into heaven. I'm just saying the reality is this. God is faithful to His promises and He's faithful to His threats. Not only unbelievers, He's going to, judge, he's going to, punish, he's going to discipline, not punish. He's going to discipline believers. Usually Hebrews 12, 7 through 10. God disciplines those whom He loves. If we don't respond properly to God's grace and His patience and His loving kindness, if we don't respond with repentance because of our sin, there is, there is punishment. <coughs> Romans 8.1 says, For now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know what that tells me? For those who are not in Christ Jesus, there's condemnation. And you know what I deserve the moment, the second before I, by God's grace, believed in Jesus Christ? I deserved condemnation. And I was getting condemnation. But God's grace, He rescued me as Daniel led us in singing this morning. That's how faithful God is. Not only faithful to His promise and His threats, God is involved in the affairs of the world. He is involved in all the affairs of the world. 
You, you see throughout Deuteronomy why all the laws, what God was showing them is there is no area of life that God's holiness and, and, and our representation of His character does not matter. There's no area of my life or your life that is insignificant when it comes to representing our great God. No areas. You look at Acts 17, uh, verse 26. I don't know if they have that. This, this, I may have put this one in later. But Acts 17, 26, Paul writes this, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live all on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their inhabitation. You see how great God is? He has determined every single person's length of life. He's determined every single person's boundaries. And, and, and He desires, His grace is sufficient for all areas of life. God, we see a God of this Bible, this God of the Bible that is intimately involved. And even in Israel's disobedience, Moses here traces God's hand. If you would read this, for, I would challenge you while we're studying Deuteronomy. Go back and read these chapters. You will trace God's hand every single step of the way, even in disobedience. They may not see it, they may not recognize it, but Moses is showing them it was there. And he was faithful. And here's, here's, here's the point he's saying here in chapter 2. God is sovereign over all creation. Whether the creation loves him or not, he's still sovereign. Even in verse 30, look at, look at uh, verse 30. It says, The Lord your God who goes before you... Oh, that's verse 30 of chapter 2, sorry. Verse 30. But, but Sion, the king of Hishbon, was not willing for us to pass through his land. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate in order to deliver him into your hand. God is sovereign even over kings that don't love him. He's sovereign. You, you, you can look at Proverbs 21 and it says, The king's heart are like channels of water in the hands of the living God. He directs them wherever they want to go. Wherever they want to go. He's sovereign. He's supreme. He's on his throne. And, and there is a subtle danger for all of us, a subtle danger, and it's this, to doubt God's goodness and faithfulness. It's exactly what we see in Genesis 3. Satan comes and wants him just to doubt. Just to doubt whether God's good. To doubt whether he's faithful. And it's subtle. But it has huge consequences. Because if he can get us to doubt God's character, he'll get us to do all kinds of other things. If we doubt his character. God is always good. And he's always faithful. He's always good. And he's always faithful. Chapter 3, real quickly. Beautiful truth. And as I read this, I, I just stopped and I read this over and over again. Chapter 3, there's no God like our God. There's no God like our God. That, that's really why I've asked Matthew to come in even today as, at this 11 o'clock hour. And I hope you'll stay in here. He, he, he heads up the Tampa Muslim outreach. But what he's going to share with us today is, is, is specific to that, but it's sufficient for, for anything. And really what it shows is the greatness of our God, the uniqueness of our God. Look at verse 24 of chapter 3. I also pleaded with the Lord at the time, saying, O Lord your God, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. Listen to this. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Th that's a rhetorical question. The answer is there is none. There's no God like the God of this word. It's just almost like what Paul says is in, in about false gods. He says they're really not gods at all. They're, they're, they don't even exist. They're, they're just so inferior and all throughout the Bible, all throughout the Bible, over 46 times in the Bible, over 46 times the Word of God says explicitly that the God of this Bible is completely unique and is the greatest of all. They're, they're there. Uh, in, I won't reference them all, but they're there on, on your handout. Look, look at 3.5 look at real quick just to see this. 
And this was, this was one of those aha moments for me as I was studying. It, it just jumped off the page. Look at verse three, five, chapter 3, verse 5. All these were cities. These are the cities that this is what he allowed this generation to overtake. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides a great many unwalled towns. And look at verse 6. What, he, what did they do because they acted in faith? We utterly destroyed them. You say, well, Chris, what's the big deal? Flip back to chapter 1. And go to verse 28. What was it about the promised land that caused Israel to get scared and run? We, where can we go up? Our brethren have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are bigger and taller than we are. The cities are large and fortified to heaven. And besides, we saw the sons of Anakim there. This, the, you see what happens in faith? The same thing that scared the previous generation away because they didn't trust was the same thing that this new generation, because they trusted, got to see God conquer in their midst because they trusted. The very same thing that deterred those who did not have faith didn't deter those with faith, and they got to see God do great things. Why? Because they acted in faith. This new generation that God raised up in the wilderness that trusted Him, that relied on Him, they saw and did through God what the other generation wouldn't. And they utterly destroyed them. Utterly. You, you see this in chapter 4. We're not going there. We'll go there next week. But look at Deuteronomy 4, verse 32 and following. The, the uniqueness, the greatness of our God. Deuteronomy 4, 32 through 39. Indeed, ask now concerning the former days which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth and inquire from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything been done like this great thing or has anything been heard of like it? Has any people heard the verse of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard it and survived? Or has a God tried to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders and war and a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and great terrors? as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, He is God, and there is no other besides Him. He goes on to say, Know this, verse 39, Today, and take to your heart that the Lord, He is God in heaven and above, on earth below, there is no other. Where would we turn? Then nothing's been done like this before. And the appropriate response to that is in verse 40 of chapter 4. So you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I'm giving you today. It's worship. Why do we worship? Because he's worthy. Why do we love? Because he first loved. Why are we faithful? Because he was first faithful. And that's where I want to bring it home and, and land this thing so we can have time to eat and get back here and give Matthew plenty of time. This, this is what it means for us. All of this is pointing to Calvary. All of this culminates at the cross. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would, would believe in Him would never perish but have everlasting life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, that he who knew no sin was made sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. No, nobody, nobody loves like God loves. Nobody has done for us what this God has done for us. Nobody crucifies his own son to purchase a people, a bride for that son. He didn't do that. That is exactly what God did. He, he put the punishment of sin on his own son so that we would not have to bear the punishment of our own sin. No God does that. Every other religion, every other one of these false religions in the world you look at, it is man trying to earn their way to God, and we serve a God who came to us. He, he, he left heaven and came to us and made us perfectly qualified. 
And the, the call is this, just respond in, respond in kind. Respond. There's no other God like this. Every other God, it's work, 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 and hope that you've done enough that your good outweighs your bad. This God is, look, you can't be good enough. You'll never be good enough. I'll make you good enough. I'll make you good enough. And he says, just respond. Respond in worship to me and respond in the love that I've shown you. Respond in loving your neighbor. Respond. And just like God made a way for Israel to be delivered from slavery in Egypt, He made a way for sinners like you and me to be delivered from sin. And just like Israel had to pass through the Red Sea in order to be delivered, we can only be saved by passing through Jesus Christ. And just like the Passover of Egypt, when they applied the blood to the door and the angel passed over them, the only way God's judgment is going to be passed over our lives is if Jesus Christ, has been, His blood has been applied to the doorposts of our lives. And just like when God fought Israel's battles and won the victory for them and gave them the opportunity to enjoy the blessing of that victory, God fought the battle over sin and death for us by putting His Son on a cross. And then He says, you, you enjoy the blessing. It's, I hope that's what you're seeing, the continuity between what God did then and what God has done for us. All of this was pointing to Christ. And the question is the same as it was for Israel. How will you respond to God's grace? Will you question Him? Will you doubt Him? Or will you love Him and follow Him and serve Him? That's the question. Will you repent of your sinfulness and receive salvation, or will you keep trying to do it on your own like Israel did and, and, and be condemned? Because you couldn't do it. You can't satisfy God on your own. Jesus Christ satisfied God. Will you take God's blessings and try to use them in your own way and miss out on the biggest blessing of the world, that is knowing and being known by God? Will you, will you, have you responded to His grace by trying to be good enough? Or have you responded to His grace by simply giving up yourself on His behalf because that's exactly what He did for you? Don't miss salvation like Israel did. Don't miss the promised land like Israel did. Don't, don't miss out. You'll see even the word, the rest, that He was offering them rest. Well, that's exactly what Christ did. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, take my yoke upon you. Rest. In me, you'll find rest. Our rest is in Christ because salvation is finished. It's accomplished. I, I pray that every person in here will have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. I pray that every single person here, if they have, would respond since they are saved with worship and gratefulness and that they'll tell others. And that's exactly why I've asked Matthew to come here to equip us to better tell others about the great grace that this God has offered us and that there is no other God like this God.